Rashad, man, thanks so much for coming to hang out. Thanks for having me. I, I was looking at, you know, I do a lot of research. I look people up a little bit, make sure uh, make sure I can know a, a little bit about them before I have them on. And I was on your blog, and there's this passage in there that, that really resonates with me. Uh, it says, I've been passionately obsessing over cars and actively engaging the local car community in Los Angeles for at least 10,000 hours. I've chosen this life over buying a house, getting married, or having kids. I don't think those pre are prerequisites, but objectively, I have prioritized motoring enthusiasm over most things in my life. For better or for worse, this is the manifestation. And I want to kind of know, why did you choose this lifestyle for yourself? Like, what is it about this lifestyle that um, basically that you've chosen it over house, marriage, kids, a lot of the other things that um, a lot of other people choose? What is it about it? Yeah, that's such a good, uh, good, good uh, intro and good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't read that passage in a while, um, but uh, it, you know, I, it's just something that that happened very naturally. I just kind of fell into it. I would say that I always enjoyed cars and have been a fan of cars for a very long time, and you know, recently started to be in a position to be able to afford that. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think. If you have this ism or this bug, you know, it just kind of chooses you. And uh, it's hard to explain why. And, and um, what I like to give my audience is a, is a true reflection of what this looks like for me. And I know it doesn't have to be everybody's story. Like I know a lot of people that are into this car stuff and they have a big fancy house and, and a wife that allows them or a partner that allows them to do these things. Uh, that just happens to be my slice of the story. I wouldn't say that I like intentionally chose one or the other but um yeah i don't know i, I think this life kind of chose me and and i just went in head first there and you know i'm enjoying the ride so when did when did you dive in what was head first or when did you realize oh shit this is me this is me now you know where did this start for you <clears throat> um, and forgive me i'm a little bit under the weather so i have a cough drop but it's all good. um I, uh, there's been different phases for me. I would say it start. my earliest memory is, is building model cars. So like six, four Impalas and, and living in South Central LA, that was a thing we used to, um, you know, people would say this was extreme, but we used to like candy paint the model cars. And, Damn. um, I had a, I had an uncle cousin by marriage type scenario who taught me how to like put hydraulics on the model cars. So this is like really, really old school. Um, so you have like a little remote and everything and the cars are moving. Yeah. Dang. It was like a little switch, you know, like literally a little switch. And, um, you know, you could do like three wheel motion. Like I'm showing my age when I say that, but like some people that used to do that, they'll be like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so that's when it started. And then, and then remote RC cars were really big when I was a kid as well. And I remember, uh, Hold on, before we get like away from the model car thing too much, was that like when you were other than the model cars, when you were out in the world as, as little Rashad, were you seeing these cars too? Were these cars like if you're in South Central, were they out there? Were they prominent? You're seeing the low riders, you're seeing this stuff, you're watching MTV, you're seeing them there. Was that like, was that what you were yeah. into? Yeah, um, I was young and I didn't have family members that drove low riders and whatnot, but we lived in South Central LA. Um, I would say not necessarily like, um, you know, not super duper close to Crenshaw, which is where you would see, you know, you could go to Crenshaw on a Sunday or a Saturday and, and see these low riders. And so um, it wasn't like an everyday thing that I would see the low riders, but I definitely lived in LA 
and you would see them occasionally. I probably saw them most on on MTV or, or you know Dr. Dre videos and, and yep. things of that nature. Dr. Dre's uh, early videos really stand out as a as a as a place where I would see them the most. But you definitely would see them like in the in the streets. But you had to be careful. Like where I'm from in the hood, you had to be careful driving around your nice car, whether it was a luxury car or a, or a tricked out six four impala um or as we would say six felt um you know you had to be careful because you know the, the the people will run up on you quick so um but yeah was it a definitely take your shit kind in. of thing or was it a jealousy and envy oh, kind yeah. of thing no they'll take it you know if you got money in a deprived area they'll you know they'll take it and then uh and then gangs were really big back then so you had to be you know the wrong color you know there's there's a lot of things that you had to be mindful of maneuvering in the in South Central Los, you know, South Central Los Angeles in the eighties. Did you experience any of that yourself when you started getting older and driving? In terms of people running up on me, yeah, anything like what were you driving back then? You know, what were you driving? Well, I actually moved from South Central Los Angeles to the suburbs of Atlanta okay. at the age of at the age of eleven. Oh, that's a big move. So. Man. Uh, yeah, I had quite the juxtaposition, and um, and so you had to change out uh, your whole my, CD library, dude. Like, <laughs> I kept it. No, I kept it. I kept it a buck with uh with LA music, but um, so my driving, my coming of driving years were actually based in Atlanta, and that was a whole nother sort of culture shock and seeing uh, my first car to answer your question that was like a Pontiac Grand Dam or something some sort of like hand-me-down car that I drove illegally at the age of 15 and wrecked on the first drive. <laughs> Dude, that's, no I did. I had a Grand Am and I drove it through a fence. What did you do? Like that was, that was my yeah. wreck was, and it was at like a homeless shelter. I drove her through the fence and all these people came out like, like, yo man, are you all right? And I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry. I just drove through your, your fence. What, what did you do? I didn't. I, um, my mom gave me the car and we were young and in the South, you know, they would let you drive. I don't know if it was a time or a location, but you know, in the South, you could get away driving, you know, at a young age in a rural area like we were in. And, uh, I think I took the car, drove to like some, like a restaurant called like Qdoba or maybe a Jersey Mike's or something like that (laughs) and crashed into an elderly white man coming out (laughs) into the guy. Yeah, like I crashed. The, oh. was, he was in a truck. He was in a okay, truck. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. So there's there's 15 year old Rashad already running into people. Oh man! Yeah. When did like so? Like Grand Am isn't like exactly the seed of enthusiasm. What's the where's the seed of automotive enthusiasm after that? Yeah, i um. So my car, the first car that I actually purchased for myself uh, was a Mitsubishi Eclipse. And, um, that actually came from my mom. My mom had uh, a Mitsubishi Eclipse and so it just seemed like a very natural progression. Um, but before up to that point, um, I grew up, I was a poor kid, but I grew up around very, very wealthy kids. And, um, so my best friends, um, you know, my, my, one of my close best friends was, uh, the son of a, of a top three most famous boxers of all time. So, uh, he drove a Range Rover when we were 15, he was 14. So he had a Range Rover when we were 14, a brand new one. And, uh, and then we didn't, we did weird things. So I would drive my friend's cars up until I got to the, the, into my college years where I had to, you know, purchase my own car. But, 
Um, so Range Rover, uh, the new Beetle, when the Beetle was really hot, like the new Beetle had came out and it was like the yeah. cat's meow. Um, PT Cruiser, believe it or not, like a PT Cruiser when, uh, when it was the cat's meow, it was like the hottest thing ever. Um, uh, Ford Expedition, uh, Acura MDX, my, my, uh, I always like to relate to the, the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad my my rich dad drove jaguars like he had like a xk8 or something like that convertible um we uh we used to drive a like an old school 850i like the ones that are popular Dang. right now yeah yeah i tr- i used driving an 850i in the, in the woods of georgia uh, at like 16 years old and i remember i got i got it stuck in on the side of the road like with mud and stuff like that we had to this very funny memory of us like because you know the car's not that big i think there was like three of us crammed in there and uh i remember i had pulled over trying to make a u-turn and the roads were narrow and like there was no sidewalks or anything you just dirt and it was rain and i guess the tires were either like no tread tires or or uh or bald and uh, I got the car stuck in the mud, and we literally had to get. I was like teenagers driving around an 850i, uh, uh, obeying the speed limit by, at all times. Uh, yeah, yeah, owned by owned by somebody famous or semi-famous, and we had to get out and push the car and get all muddy in the process and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was my those were my early car experiences. And then when I got when I got to college, my mom had a Mitsubishi Eclipse when I was in high school that I wrecked. And then it came time for me to buy a car. And I just like, my mom was like, just go to the dealership. They'll give you something. Just go to the dealership. I was like, all right. And, uh, and so I, I went up there and got the, the, the crappiest deal ever on a, on a red 99 Mitsubishi Eclipse. And, which, uh, uh, which one was it? Are we talking like GSX? Like what, wait, like uh, all wheel, all wheel drive turbo, right? Nah, it was like an automatic RS, probably the, the basic yeah. one that I could afford. Yep. And, uh, it, and then subsequently, I think Fast and Furious kind of came out around that time. And so yes, it did. my my early real car, you know, I, I have different phases of cars, car enthusiasm, but that phase was probably mired in me putting black Motigi FF7s on my red uh, Mitsubishi Eclipse and, and lusting after uh, the Evo, you know, which was like higher up in the food chain. And uh, the 3000 GT, I think, was out at that time. And so, yeah, I always feel like in every phase of my car journey, there's something that I'm enjoying in the moment and then something that I'm like lusting after. But that's what I remember at that time was, was uh, being in the sort of uh, the Mitsubishi Japanese car. Phase. What was the what was the scene like? If you could describe what what that was like that back then for you, wow, nothing like uh, nothing like what I would say the scene is here in Los Angeles today. But it was just a bunch of teenagers driving around their rich parents' cars, uh, and it just there was no real scene. It was uh, it wasn't really about cars. I wasn't like plugged into the car scene. I did have uh, buddies that were like into tour cars, and so. I remember when I got my Eclipse, I had a buddy that had a Honda Civic that was super geeked out about it. He like pumped me up. He's like, oh, this is cool. You can get rims. We would get rims anyway, though, like as black enthusiasts, like our, this was in the scene. You buy a car, you go straight to the rim shop, then you go get your your windows tenant, and then you go to the, the radio shop. And then you got your car. That was the scene, uh, for, for the black crowd, you know, at that time. 
Um, but was it Mark specific Mark, at all? So you're getting rims on whatever you got, or are you trying to find yeah. certain types of cars or you're just like, whatever it is, it's got to have rims on it. Whatever it is, you got to have rims on it. If it's a, if it's a Pontiac Grand Am, you got to have them, got to have rims on it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. And then there was a bunch of stuff just adjacent, but when I had the Eclipse, I sort of, and Fast and the Furious was around, like, I kind of got tucked, uh, pulled into the tuner scene. And so it was like, go get the rims, go get the, uh, the air intake and, you know, doing all of those little tweaks. And, uh, and then adjacent to that, um, I also grew up, uh, with a kid whose parents ran, uh, own, uh, Southern off-road specialist in North Georgia. And, they're a really, really big, like off-roader, uh, setup outfit. And so adjacent to all of that stuff that I was talking about, which is like rims, radio, tinted windows, or the tuner yeah. Japanese stuff, there was the big truck scene where I was dating a girl that had a Jeep. I, I used to drive my buddies lifted 1500 Ram with the 44 inch super swampers. Like yeah. all of that was all happening at the same time. And was it like, uh, were these different, were, when I got into the car scene here, it was very segregated. So you'd have mm -hmm. like the white dudes were driving European cars. The Asian dudes had the imports. The black guys had the cars with the, with the rims. And it was very, very, very segregated. Nobody really like integrated with any other group. It just wasn't something, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but we just didn't go hang out with the other guys. Was it like that where you were as well? Kind of, but also not really at the same time because the the town that I grew up in in Georgia was a predominantly white suburb. And so there just wasn't that much diversity to speak of, period. And so there wasn't enough black people or enough Asian people to have like their own little scene. Mm -hmm. And so we all just kind of like integrated together. Um, if there was segregation, I would just say that there was probably like there was definitely a, a difference between the car rims sounds tent crowd versus the lifted truck mud boggers crowd there was definitely that that uh delineation but not necessarily along racial lines although you know very clearly like the the lifted truck um off-road thing was like a predominantly like white thing for sure but did you have a pretty yeah, good had... experience with that or oh go ahead sorry i don't know go ahead I was going to say, did you have like a primary, uh, primarily good experience with that? Or was there like some moments where you're like, yep, I'm black. Yep, I am. Was there anything like that that came up with this? Well, yeah, I mean, not so much in the car scene, uh, which is a beauty for me. I've always felt, uh, uh, ironically, despite motoring while black, like I have always felt a lot of love in the car scene and a lot of advocacy and a lot of support. Uh, not always, but. Um, you know, uh, it was the South. And so when we're talking about my childhood, you know, the, the, the parts that made me very aware of my blackness is when our rival high school had like a KKK rally in the parking lot of the rival high school. Right. And it just so happened that a lot of the big truck guys. So to get very specific, um, I, I grew up in North Fulton County, Georgia, and right, uh, next to North Fulton County, Georgia is Forsyth County, Georgia. And, um, there's, you know, people say the KKK started in, in different parts of the world or whatever. But when I told my dad where I lived and, and whatnot, he is from South Georgia 
And he lived in California when I moved to, to Georgia. And I, you know, I told him where I was running around and who I was dating. And he's like, you're dating a white girl from, from Forsyth County. Are you trying to get hung? Like, so I think it was like comments like that, that made me very aware of my blackness. And, and then, um, you know, like legit KKK rallies and stuff like that. But that didn't typically bleed into the car scene. The, the one thing I will say is that like you saw a lot of Confederate flags on the on the big trucks like on the big lifted trucks there was a lot of that like confederate flag energy um but for whatever it's worth like a lot of those those kids are and i mean we were kids at the time but a lot of my friends who would rock like the stars and the bars and all that like they were kind to me they like loved me and and uh and i really got a chance to like understand when people met uh you know heritage you know, uh, hate or pride, not prejudice. And, and now we're adults and we can speak about it in a different way and, and, and sort of make those connections, whether people realize it or not. All right. Uh, but at the time, you know, like I, I was exposed to a lot of that, but I really understood, uh, one of my best, best friends that I, that I worked with, uh, for years, um, a dude, I haven't talked to him in years, but if I had to jump in front of a bullet for this guy today, I would still like, we just, we were like that. And I used to drive a big, uh, big ass Dodge Ram with, uh, with a Confederate flag in the rearview mirror. And like he had given me rides in that car and all types of stuff. And uh, I just remember having some really intimate conversations about with him, about like the Confederate flag and what that meant for my people and like uh, uh, things like that. But I would say those are some of the int- the the intersections where I became very, very aware of my blackness. How do you meet in the middle like that, right in a truck with a guy, it's got a Confederate flag in the back window and you're just like buddies. Like, how do you, like, how do you come to that, that point where you guys can just talk? Cause it seems like from like an outsider's perspective that I don't, I don't really have much experience in the South. And, but I would just be like, how could those two things coexist at the same place at the same time? Like, oil, it seems like oil and water. Yeah, I mean, I was again. We were kids at the time, so teenagers, and and uh, and then I would say early adult years. And uh, uh, I don't think, um, you know, as a young child uh, coming from like a mixed race family, um, that I had all of the the vernacular and and awareness uh, to sort of. You know, the energy would just be different now as a, as a grown ass man and, and, you know, with means to drive myself around and, and all of those and all of those different things. But I don't know with my buddy, the the guy that I'm referring to, I'm thinking about at the top of my head is Rock. I need to call Rock after this and see how he's doing. But like, I just knew him. I just knew him to his core. I knew where he had come from. I knew that that was a uh, I knew that was a family thing that he inherited just as much as I inherited my black skin or the appreciation for, for gumbo or black history month. I knew that he had inherited that, that Confederate flag and whatever that meant to him and his family. And, and, uh, you know, when he talked about heritage and hate, I knew that he, when he was rocking that Confederate flag, he, it wasn't about hating me or anybody that looked like me. It literally was about, whatever fictional pride that they have mustered up about what it meant to be a rebel in the South and what it meant to stand up for your rights and, and, and push back on some government entity trying to dictate your way of life. Like 
the heritage aspect of that, right? And, you know, this may go wrong. This may, you know, you know again, this is a you know, different, very controversial topic, but there is an element to that. And it also is true that like, no, well, the heritage is hatred. You know, the heritage yeah. is slavery, the slavery, uh, the heritage is prejudice. And like, you can't separate those two. I don't think you can, you can separate that now, but like at the time, I knew that this guy loved me. You know, I knew that he loved me. So like, I knew that he didn't intend for that to be so hurtful for me to see his Confederate flag. And so, you know, that's where we would meet in the middle or whatnot. um, Well, that's the naivety of childhood, right? You know, like when you're a child, you you just, my kids, you know, they're eight and 10. They they don't think about it at all. You know, they just don't until they're spoiled by the real world. Another thing for me, too, is my mom never talked about stuff like that. So I come from a, a mixed race family. Uh, my mom probably has she's black, but she I would describe her as Creole. And so she has like your skin tone. Um, and so like that sort of black experience is very different. My dad is from the South um, and looks just like me. I actually look spitting image like my father, which is scary <laughs> when that happens. When you're like, oh, you can see the future. Bed. You can see the, the, the <laughs> la- you can see where you're going to land. <laughs> yeah, I turn, I'm like, I'm turning it to my, my father. This is crazy. My dad is from rural South Georgia and experienced ra- real deal textbook racism stuff that you hear, you know, and see in movies and, and the worst of the worst. And so if she ever had known that I was riding around with a guy with a Confederate flag hanging off of his rear view mirror, he probably... Um, you know, he probably would have had some some choice words about that. But that's also the dynamic of not growing up around your father and like the impact of things like that, you know? Well, who's right then? You know, like the, the guy obviously has real life experience to feel justified in every way about saying that to you. Like, what the fuck are you doing driving around this guy's truck? At the same time, yeah. you have every right to be like, I don't know, this guy's always been nice to me. Like both yeah. things are right at the same time. Yeah, I think... um I think if I had the the awareness and if my father was around, if I had an adult in my life, you know, that looked like me to tell me, Hey, this isn't, this isn't a great idea. And here's why, um, you know, I probably would have maneuvered differently. What I can say though, is that I did have for as young as we were, we had eloquent conversations about that Confederate flag. And like the last I'd known of my buddy rock, he stopped rocking that Confederate flag you know, probably about 20 years ago, right. uh, you know, if I recall. So that, I don't remember as like we transitioned into being adults. Like, I don't remember that being a thing, you know. So um, for whatever it's worth, I can look back on that experience and say, like, um, it's important to dialogue. It's important to, to leave a space for a dialogue. It's important to leave space to understand a different person's perspective. And uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that uh, experience so I can um so i can look at both both sides of the coins when this like sensitivity and these like these tough issues sort of pop up yeah yeah so why did you start motoring while black like what it, what is it and and why do you have the the instagram feed like what are you up to yeah motoring while black is just really about celebrating motoring enthusiasts of color and and uh it started off as like fast forward a bunch of years and uh I finally, I had a bunch of cool cars along the way, but you know, we come up with these distinctions in our mind about what's a really cool car, or not a cool car, and am I, am I buying that at a 
I had bought my first cool car, which was a Mark eight, uh, GTI. And, uh, I think I was, uh, probably, I don't know. I would, I lived in Venice beach, California and I would just walk around and, and, uh, I would take pictures of other people's cars and, and I finally bought my little GTI and, uh, the feed originally started off as just a place to put pictures. I didn't want to like, fly. I was a, a working DJ at the time. And so I didn't want to like flood my, my real Instagram timeline with a bunch of pictures of a Volkswagen, uh, GTI. Right. And, um, and so that's what originally it started off as, uh, essentially is like the beginning of my little car collection, which was a Mark, a Mark seven, I should say not a Mark eight, but a Mark seven, uh, five GTI. And then that, I always tell people like taking for me, I'll speak for myself because other people feel differently, but for me, taking pictures of my own car got really, really old, really, really fast. And, uh, and so, but I lived in Venice and like, there was like a lot of these like hidden gems between the, the locals, uh, and the tech bros. There were like cool Alfa Romeos. There was uh, 2002s. There was 901, you know, 911, actually all kinds of 911. There were locals that had low riders and, and so, um, the page quickly morphed into like almost like a car spotting type of thing where it was just like no real uh, intentionality or anything, just like seeing cool cars, taking pictures. Then it morphed into me wanting to take better photos. Like I got really, really inspired by people like Larry Chen and, and other automotive photographers. And I just really wanted to get better at, at taking photos and it became like almost like a, a hobby. I grabbed, I bought a camera and then George Floyd happened. You know, um, and you want to talk about these moments of life where you become very aware of your blackness. You know, uh, I get invited into a lot of rooms and uh, being black is, is always present. Like we don't have I think that's the luxury. Uh, Wait, you that, can't just turn it off. You can't just like nah, hit a switch and you just nah. stop being black. Like what? No, nah, I think some of the privilege that that black people get really frustrated about, though, in terms of like white privilege, it's like one of those privileges is is that you don't necessarily always have to be so conscious of your race and like uh, you know as a black person like you're it's always there whether it's like front and center or not but you know it ebbs and flows you know it's not every day that I woke up thinking about oh, like it sucks to be black in this white America you know like it, it's not like that but um you know, there it ebbs and flows, especially for my speaking for myself, um, who has a very beautiful life and is great. You know, I'm, I'm doing much better than than where we where we came from. But when that George Floyd situation happened, like the awareness of blackness and and the disparities and the, and the death and and all of that became like front and center, and uh, actually very similar to a uh, you know a moment that we're having right now with with conflict and 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 war and stuff like that um just posting about cars felt really old like felt very uh poor taste to me like uh the timing of it uh it just didn't feel right and so um i became very hyper aware of my blackness um i also really sparked uh something that i had done in the past but um didn't have the language or the intentionality around it until then, but it, it really sparked my uh, creativity and my focus around like uh, journalism as a style of photographer, 
photography. And that really kind of came up with documenting, you know, the protests and, and whatnot. And because of this, so the confluence of me picking up the camera, learning that skill, being black, being in the cars, living through George Floyd, what that morphed into was I started looking for other people that look like me and these everyday sort of car scene scenarios that I would find myself in. And I found, uh, I found it to be very limited. Like there just wasn't that many. But I would see them because I was maneuvering around and I was doing different things in different sides of town and different circles. And like, you know, so I would see them, but it wasn't like consistent. And I would see like Sabat Young or Adrian Miles on a channel like Petrolicious, right? But I wouldn't, it wasn't consistency. And so something happened and I just decided to sort of like, you know, really focus on the black automotive experience, you know, the black experience being the subject and in the context, you know, being the automotive community. And it just kind of took off from there, to be honest. Um, and so now what I would just say the brand is or how I operate is just using my platform as a, as a way to not, not only showcase my cars and, and like my experience, just being a, a black enthusiast that's like connected and seen and is doing relatively cool stuff from what other people have suggested, but also just taking a moment. There's so many like, uh, black uh, like agents and managers and engineers and executives and uh, car builders and and creatives and other photographers and so like I'm really just documenting my experience as a black automotive enthusiast and every time I get the opportunity to sort of also take that light off of me and shine it on another creator or another engineer or a uh, or a designer or uh, partner with a brand to help bring uh, some cultural awareness and sensitivity to their brand or platform. Like that's what motoring uh, while black is today. And, and uh, you know, ultimately just trying to tell that story of the, of the black motoring enthusiast in, in a celebratory way. And, and also acknowledge the advocates along the way. Cause there's, there's a lot of advocacy that's happening, you know, in front of the camera and behind the scenes as well. So Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry, and there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com, and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, I, when I think critically about this stuff, like as a, as a white dude, you know, my inclination is to be like, well, everybody just wants to be treated the same. And I think that's the that's the trap that you fall into is like you it's like, oh, I just want you let's say I'm doing it like a like a get together or something like that. You want everybody to show up and you want everybody to just feel fine and, and be the same. And it's it's truly not I truly don't think that's what we need. I think we like the the celebration of diversity and and everything when everybody shows up is probably what makes it it, it makes it most important. Having just washing it all out so everybody just feels a certain way. Um, probably, probably is not what we're after. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I mean, there's like a lot of, 
ironically in my daytime and my sort of regular work, I work in, uh, in sort of like people and talent, uh, strategy and, and dynamics and, and, uh, and so I'm like well-versed in the difference between like diversity and inclusion. And like, that's kind of what you're describing. Like diversity is just kind of like having like, it's like and diversity is sort of like an invitation to the party, but like inclusion is being asked to dance. And there's like all of these metaphors and images that are out there that shows like the difference between like equality and equity and, and things like that. But uh, I, I think we have a mutual friend, Joshy. Yep. And uh, and Joshy, I love Joshy. Shout out uh, Earth to Robots. Uh, I think that's the brand now, Earth to Robots, but more yep. affectionately known as Joshy Robots. Good dude. Good, good human. Good dude. He's um, honestly one of the one of the people that put me on this path to thinking critically about this stuff. Yeah, he's a good dude. He makes me think critically about how I maneuver sometimes and stuff like that, you know, even being on my own journey. But uh, he had called me once and he sort of was, um, and I had been aware of these rallies and things like what you guys do. But uh, I think uh, Brendan McKay is actually the first person that I had seen uh, show. You know, I was, uh, we had overlap in the, being based in L.A. and being into photography. And I think that's the first time that I had seen your brand. Um, and so I had awareness of it. Um, I sort of had awareness of like Robin's rally and things like that, but didn't really, you know, I was still doing my own thing and didn't really like, you know, there's so much to be into. So I'm like, yeah. until I get an invitation that, or, you know, until I need to be aware of it, like I'm just not aware it's okay. Um, and Joshy called me once and he sort of was describing, I don't know if he was describing Overcrest or if he was describing, robins or if he was just describing his normal life of like rallying he's like how come there aren't more people of color doing this you know like why are my friends that are uh, of color like you know why am i black? he didn't say black i don't remember what the words exactly but it's a good question though man he was he was kind of asking me you know like the why behind it and there's like it's so many layers to it's so many layers and the first thing i will say is that black people are not monolithic so like my journey is like so much different you know, that everybody, a kid that grew up in South Central LA playing with low riders that never left South Central, never left Compton, went to high school out in Compton, you know, like that experience is so much different than somebody that like me who got plucked out of the hood, landed in some rich suburb, you know, suburban area. It, it's just, a, it's a complete, everybody's perspective and situation is just so, so different. But like my perspective for Joshy, just like thinking about it critically in that moment, it was just like, it's a lot of different reasons, you know, uh, access is one of those reasons, you know, are they invited, uh, to like black people need to be careful speeding on back roads, <laughs> like in any, in any rural part of the country. Like let's, take, the, let's take these one at a time as we, as we go through these, you said like, <laughs> are they invited? Um, and then we'll talk about speeding as a, as a black guy in, in a, in a sports car, I think is probably uh, terrifying. Um, so are they invited? Right. So like, do I need, or do they need to feel invited? Like if, is yeah. there like, is there a reason that they wouldn't just assume that they're invited? Anytime that you are looking at something that looks predominantly white, you're skeptical or like there's an assumption like I am I am the fact that we're having this conversation and 
I've taken the time to appreciate and understand what you are doing and have, and have, and have also gone on Robin's route. Like, I understand what's happening a little bit more. But before all of this, what I saw was a bunch of uh, white guys thrashing their Porsches in in Utah or Oregon or, or wherever you guys were driving, you know? So, like, yep. it, it looked like a very white thing. And uh, I, nobody sent me an invitation. I didn't know. I didn't know if I would be, you know, like, um, you know, so th- I think there's – and, again, I'm speaking for myself. Black people are not monolithic, so you don't know. I'm just sharing my experience. Um, so, yeah, there's an access thing. And, like, sometimes you don't care about that. You just, like, kick down the door and you're like, I want to be invited to this. And sometimes you're like – this looks cool, but I don't feel like breaking, breaking any like racial barriers. Sometimes it just needs to be somebody there in the scene, which is like important for me on some of these things to just like be there and to show my face and to, to show my experience and, and hopefully like open the door for another person of color that says that like, Oh, okay. Like he's there. He, he approved, like he's down with it. Like, Oh, okay. It must not be that big of a deal, but yeah. I mean, until somebody, I think people like yourself, you know, people that run rallies like Robbins, people that run that like Texas Hill Country stuff. Um, I think, yeah, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional about invite if you want it, if you want the diversity and you want others, you know, people of color to feel included. Like, yeah, you have to be intentional about extending those invitations because a lot of people are going to be like, I don't see any black people. That must not be for me. Let me go to where the black people are at. Yep. You know, because I don't feel like dealing with a bunch. I don't. And, and, and like speaking for myself, like as a person who is self-supporting, uh, has been, you know, I look younger, but I'm older now. Like, uh, my younger, I, I don't, I don't really walk around talking about being rich or anything like that, but my younger version of my, the teenage version of my, of my, of me would look at me and say, wow, you've made it. You're rich. Like, you know, but we all know that there's layers to the, yes. you know, there's the difference. Just like there's, there's always more money, just like there's always more <laughs> yeah. horsepower, man. There's always more. Yeah. <laughs> there's a difference between a base model 997, 911, and a Carrera yeah. GT, right? Like, there's yeah. levels to this. So I, I'm not claiming to be rich, but like, as a person that's self supporting, that can afford this lifestyle, um, that isn't struggling in that regard, that has transitioned from survival mode to thrival mode. I'm not going anywhere where I'm not welcome and wanted and celebrated and, and appreciated. You know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't need the favor. I don't have to, you know? So yeah, there's a, you know, how do you, how do you make people feel invited without being like, I need to go find black people to come on my event because I want them there and I want the diversity and I want different stories and different backgrounds. And I mean, that's what I love is I love, talking to different people with different stories and different backgrounds and things I've never heard of before and different cultures. But like, how do I like, and I'm not trying to make, I, this is, I guess a little about me and how I feel, but like, how do I, how do I approach that? How do I make it seem like I'm not just out? Like I need black people on my event, like, and, and have like a genuine conversation about wanting to have diversity of story and culture. Yeah. And that's a really, it's a great question and it's a tough question. And I think, and the reason it's tough because then there's a fine line and it becomes like, wait a minute, am I the token here? Do you know what I mean? And and that is what you don't want to do. And it's tough. Like there's no specific recipe. Um, you know, I could just share, you know, my experience with like Robbins is like, I was like, I went into the situation very side eye, you know, like as the only black person on the rally, I'm like, why am I here? Like, 
am I the token black guy in this scenario? Like, what? <laughs> what am I here just because I'm black? Like, what? It's like, you know. So it took a while for me to sort of like uh, unpack that brick wall that I even had there for myself. Um, and so, like, I don't. There's not. There's not a. Um, you know, there's not a, a clear, definitive answer to that. Um, but what I can say is what helped me is like somebody like Joshi reaching out to just like uncover the why, you know, like why don't people like you show up to these things? Mm -hmm. Somebody like Michael um, extending me the invitation, right? And then people like Dorothy and, and Sarah and Joshi and Dorian um, and Smiley and uh, Lindsay, um, you know, surrounding me with love on that journey um, until I felt comfortable and, and like I felt like a part of the group. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. I don't envy your position. Um, and and we, I would have to put more critical thought into it. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic that you have to be conscious of. And like, I acknowledge that it's not an easy thing to do to make sure that people get access and feel invited, but also don't feel it like they're a token invite at the same time. You know, and it's, and it's hard and there's not a, there's not a formulaic way to. I'm sure you've got um, a bullshit meter too. <laughs> you know, like you can oh, detect, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can detect the bullshit yeah. pretty fast, right? Yeah, yeah. But you have to assume too, like a lot of people are gonna assume bullshit right off the right off the bat. You know, mm -hmm. like yeah. But a lot of times it just takes a couple, you know, it just takes one or two people. Uh black people are really big on like there are trailblazers and there are innovators out there that don't, don't care about any of that. But a lot of times black people like just the history in this country is, you know, like they need to know that there's somebody else over there that's doing like that looks like them, you know, like just out of a safety concern, like I wouldn't go in like I wouldn't go around in rural Georgia like by myself with a bunch of white people. No, I would have to be very very careful with that and scope that. Like somebody invited me to a uh, to a scout rally, like a, a international harvester scout, and then it was in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And I looked at the page. I didn't see any other like no. Nah, I'm famous. I grew up in the South. I'm from South Central LA, but I grew up in the South, so I claim uh, Atlanta as well. And I'm like. Nah, I know in the South there's a lot of gun-toting, <laughs> drunk white men. You ain't gonna catch me out in the middle of the woods trying to try to ride. Dude, I was in. Scouts. I was. I don't know if I was in Tennessee or West Virginia, but I was coming back from the Ruchelos rally in 9/11, and I and I drove by this dude, and he had a Confederate flag flying outside of his garage, and the entire front of and this is like some lean-to garage, man. I mean please just paint the thing or it's going to fall down tomorrow type of place. And out in the front are his like beer can, like driveway, like just crushed beer cans, mm -hmm. throws them out. And it was the whole driveway was just beer cans. And then dude had like a Confederate army hat on. And I'm like, I got to mm -hmm. see what this dude's about. But that like, mm -hmm. I don't know, man, like I can do that. You, you can't do that. You know? So there's definitely yeah. like a, you know, you have to be aware of your surroundings. A thousand percent. And you can do it. Like I could do it, but I just have to, you know, is, you know, you have to. Is it worth your life? You know, you might right. be risking your life trying to trying to explore. But to answer your question, I think I think you have to operate with integrity. Like hold yourself to the highest integrity when you're when you're thinking about making your event more inclusive or more accessible to, to people that look like me or, or black people. Like really do it from a place of earnestness and, and integrity, 
and be intentional about um, the invitations and and uh, you know put some measures in place to make sure people um, you know feel truly included when they're there you know because um, you know that's in my corporate world that's a whole other thing too it's like we can get we can get people in the door but like do they feel like they belong there when it's all said and done and it's like it's not a given not a, it's not a given that that happens so i don't envy that position and, and happy to dialogue more one-on-one if you ever need yeah. to brainstorm on stuff like that it's I, I try to think of in terms of like what if i was going to go to a lowrider event in south central mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. a donk event here in minneapolis I would feel weird as shit just walking up to this event as the only white dude. Like it, it's, I, I don't know. Like I just, I don't, it, I, I wouldn't, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to act. I don't know. I don't know. Like, can I just, it's just, it's a different culture. It's like going almost yeah. going in a way. It's like going to a different place where you don't know the norms and you don't know like what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it doesn't come from a, from me, it doesn't come from a place of fear. It just comes from like a, like a cultural discomfort of not knowing how to act yeah. or is, am I going to fit in here? Are they going to, are they going to kick me out? Like, what do I do? So I imagine it's tough. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say to like my other, like my fellow people of color, like there's also the dynamic of just like introvertedness and extrovertedness as well. Like we also have to have like the courage to step into these rooms where like we are the only one or like, or we don't know anybody. That's what the car scene is. Like, it doesn't even matter what color you are. When you yeah. first get into these scenes, you step there and you're like, I don't, like I had a person, uh, a young uh, Latina uh, woman uh, tell me that she wanted to go to race service um, the other week, but she didn't have anybody to go with. And she was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. I'm like, just go, you know? So there's a part of it too that's like, if you see, if you're a person of color and you see something that looks cool and all, you know, and that you want to be a part of it too, like you got to also, there's a part of, there's a part where we have to take ownership as well. And just like put the, you know, Make put the leap. foot out. Like I know a lot of people that probably would have turned Robbins down. You know, I didn't really have the context. I didn't really know who was there or that it was special or anything like that. You know, I don't know. I luckily had some other friends like Dorothy and, and smile here or whatnot that were like very encouraging. And, and I just kind of like, against all of the blackness inside of me it was just like you know what i'm gonna pay somebody to go be the only black man on this journey and just see what <laughs> see what happens <laughs> and just go with the flow like you know but that's a luxury too you know when we talk about access like a lot of times there's like money involved too you yeah, know like what, like I, I had the luxury to do that you know which is another thing that me and Josh had kind of talked about you know and we can circle back around to that but the access thing is one of them the second thing was like legal like the law dealing with the law the third thing was is just like the preciousness and the monetary aspect of it like not a lot of black like it I, let me let me I don't want to use generalizations and, and again black people are not a monolithic but uh, are not monolithic but um you know, one of the, the money thing too, is like, like I was sort of describing for Joshi, like you go crazy with your portion. Like you, you try, like you treat the thing like it's He's ready to die, man. He's ready to die. That's a whole nother thing in terms of like life preservation, but I'm just talking about the car and the monetary aspect of the car. Right. When you're talking about a person like me, 
a black kid, a black guy that came from the lower income, lower social economical status in South Central LA that has miraculously, despite the cocaine 80s, despite uh, divorce, despite uh, uh, my own indiscretions and, and mistakes and as a child and all, have come out on the other end of this. People like me should be dead or in jail. Just Let's just get that. Like this, this podcast may not be the forum to, to share all of this stuff, but I will tell you like one-on-one, like if you knew all of the history and the, and the, and the deal, people like me should be dead or in jail. That's just the statistics. So for me to come out on the other end of it, and to like have this 9-11, it's a very precious thing for me now. Like I'm speaking about it in retrospect, but now I, I like actually going on that rally, like was very helpful for me letting go of the preciousness. But like, and I, do you, you feel like it's something that can be taken away from you? Very like, like this, like oh, yeah. it would just be taken away. Oh yeah. Anything, anything. But it's just like, you never know who you're dealing with, but but based on the history of, that we know of Black Americans in this country, that 9/11 might be the most precious, the most expensive, the most the nicest item that they've ever had in their entire life. The symbol of their success, the the symbol of their transition from being a broke boy in South LA to being a, a wealthy tech dude, you know, like. You just never know the history. And so, like, for me, like, I don't know a lot of black people that want to go thrash their Porsche on a back road. Like, I just don't know. It. You know, so that, I feel like I that's kind of like a universal thing, though. Like a lot of like, yeah, when you look when you look at these objects that are that are expensive. I mean, that's it takes it's one of those things where most people don't want to beat on their car until they do. And then they realize how incredible it is. Right. And then it's yeah, just, yeah. like, you know, I grew up, you know in a pretty shitty situation too, you know, heroin, mm-hmm. mom, different, different things, jumping around house to house. And, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a point where I go, well, if I lose this car, especially with my nine 11, now if something happens to that car, I'll never get another one. But I, mm-hmm. you, you got to try to put that, you got to try and put that mm-hmm. out of your mind and, and yeah. continue to do it anyway. I think there's different variations of, of that precious. Yeah. And I, and I hear you on that. And and I, I'm so glad you said that because there are some elements that that's in that those are the there's all these like elements where like you think it's because you're black and it's like that's really just a societal class money thing right that's a yeah uh, uh, you know that's more of a, just a, a capitalistic you know mindset sort of thing um, the scarcity sort of mindset that is a part of our American culture as a, as a whole. And so it's important for us to like say, understand that dynamic and like, yeah, it has nothing to do with skin color. But I would just say that there's probably more, like when I think about all of the people that drive Porsches and stuff like that, there's probably more people of color that are coming from those, like that sort of dynamic that you just described from yourself yep. than, than a lot of our counterparts. And at least it feels that way. And, uh, you know, luckily we're adults enough to know that like feelings are not always facts, but like, yeah. you know, it feels that way a lot, but the law thing, if you want to circle back around that. Yeah, man. I, I, I think of you driving around in that hot 2002, just like, are you just constantly looking in the rearview mirror at all times or what? Like, uh, what what is the so feeling like you, like comedians joke about it all the time. I'm sure Chris Rock has like 10 jokes about being pulled over as a black dude. I, and mm-hmm. I'm sure they're, they're all hilarious. 
but with every joke, it, there's, there's truth, right? So there's truth in that. Yeah. So I would say, um, being able to afford an attorney is, um, relaxed me a lot when it comes to stuff like that. Um, I also, I don't really use, I don't, I, I actually just celebrated nine years sober. Um, and so I'm never behind the wheel drunk. I'm not riding around with any contraband. I don't, you know, uh, I don't really know what the gun laws are in, in California and whatnot, but I don't really ride around with any weapons. And so like, if the most, you know, that can happen to me is, is, um, you know, getting pulled over for doing a burnout, like in downtown Los Angeles, like God, God bless the fact that I have enough, uh, cash flow to like hire an attorney for that. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to do that and live my life. But um, there are certain dynamics, you know? Um, so when I started to transition from that, that feeling of being in survival mode into thrival mode, um, you know, it doesn't happen to the family all at the same time. Right. So my, um, my house, my family house in South central Los Angeles, we just sold it last year uh, in 2023. Uh, my mom lived at the family house up until 2023 the old family house that's been in our family for 60 years in South central LA. And, and so what that means is if my mom lives there and my grandmother lives there, what that means is I spent a lot of time going back there, despite that I, I live in a nicer part of town now. And, uh, like, I don't really have any beater cars anymore, you know, so to speak. And, uh, you know, what would happen for a while is I would drive my nicer cars back to the hood to go visit my family and the police would pull me over often. Um, ironically though, my dad is a, is a former cop. <laughs> so you will, you know, despite of George Floyd and all of that stuff that happened, uh, you will never hear me use the phrase, all cops are bastards. I can't, I can't, like, I just can't use it. Uh, I would literally be calling my dad a cop a bastard. <laughs> like, right. um, and then my godfather, uh, in California was also a longstanding, uh, 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 police officer. Um, and, uh, like when he passed, like, uh, the chief of police came and spoke at his funeral. And so like, uh, in a weird, in the, like in a weird twist of fate, like, yeah, blue lives do matter for, for me and my family, like cops matter, you know, they're not all bastards. Like I know yeah. a lot of cops and their families intimately, I give all of that backdrop to say that like, I know how to handle myself in, in an interaction with a police officer. And so, um, you know, there are definitely things that you can say and do to, to deescalate the situation if you were to ever get pulled over. And, uh, and then I've also come across, you know, racist and bigoted people, whether they're in uniform or out of uniform, and it's just a hassle, you know, it's just a hassle. I've never been scared of being pulled over, man. Like I get pulled over. I'm just That's like, crazy. here's, here's my driver's license. Like, that's yes, sir. No, yeah. I, I, I don't know how fast I was going. Uh, I, I apologize, sir. You know, it's, that's, that's the way it is. I've never, it's never crossed my mind. Like if the guy walking up, like did, I've never thought about it before. Like in the interaction, nothing has ever crossed my mind about fearing the police officer that's coming up to the car. Yeah, I can't say I feel less fearful now um, after a number of years of successfully navigating those situations, even if I was in the wrong um, and having, you know, uh, family that that um, 
you know, that, that are members of law enforcement or were members of law enforcement. But um, that has not always been the case in terms of like the fear around it. And I also know that at any given time I could run into the wrong officer and it could be, you know, it can go down. So like, there's definitely fear there. And, and that's the point of what I was, you know, talking to Joshi about was, um, you know, there's an element of this of like certain black people are just not going to risk getting shot or going to jail just to drive their, their Porsche on a dirt road and, and whatever rural part of the country that we're talking about, like they, for some, for a lot of people, it just isn't worth the, you know, the hassle. Yeah, the police per risk. capita out there. It's pretty low. Not a lot of cops. I, Not I, a believe, lot that. Of cop. I believe that. <laughs> Not a yeah, lot of cops I, I out there. I believe that you're speaking the right language, but a lot of black people don't know that, you know what I mean? But although I have, I have been scouting and like, accidentally turned into what was a driveway and had a dude like walk out on his porch with a shotgun. So that's the other, uh, you know, that's the other yeah. aspect of it too. So yeah, not yeah. a lot of cops, but maybe there's a lot of dudes on their porches with shotguns. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, man, it's scary. I kind of feel like if I was to get taken out now, so many people know my story. Uh, if I was to get taken out by a cop now, like so many people know my story and and what I'm about and like how I operate and how I vibrate, what kind of career that I, you know, I did have a cop pull me over in Venice a couple of years ago. I was in a Mustang driving a little bit fast and uh, he pulled me over and he's like, who you roll with? And I'm like, huh? And like, I knew what he meant, but I was just like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, and he's like, who you roll with? You don't gangbang? And this was at a time where they were putting, they were just pulling black people over and putting them in their gang database, which is crazy. It's just crazy. Like I'm a grown ass man at this point. This is probably about five years ago. And I'm like, no, sir. Uh, no, I don't gang bang. I'm an HR professional for a tech company. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I was driving fast. Is there, is there anything else that I did wrong? <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. But it, you know, it's, it's crazy, man. It, it, it is crazy. It, it's a, it is unfortunate. And, uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of these like police, police brutality things sort of happen, um, you know, based on traffic stops, you know, yeah. which is, you know, a dynamic that we have to be very conscious of and, and fight against that element. But I think we talk about like, well, why don't black people or why don't people of color, why are they hesitant or why don't they show up at things like that? There's, there's an element there, um, that's not easily, you know, that's not easily reversed and like, if, um, you know, if that wasn't the case, like situations like Rodney King and George Floyd and, and all of the countless other people that have lost their lives over the past, you know, 100 years or so, like, you know, also too, just the, the idea of the, like the, how the police were created and stuff like that based on like slave patrol and all that. So, yeah, it's not a thing that you can just fix overnight, but I think the law and the legal trouble aspect of it is like, you know, you might drive your Porsche on a back road and you might, you know, get pulled over and get a ticket. Maybe at the worst case, you get your car towed. Like a black person speeding on the back road with a Porsche, they're like, they may catch, they may catch a bullet. That's, that's a big risk to just to have some back road fun. It's so wild. That, that, that is so inconceivable to me. Like, it's so inconceivable that that could happen, you know? And I, I understand that you feel that way. And it's obviously it comes from a place of, of realness and it's so difficult for me to understand and 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 realize in my mind that that's a possibility it just seems so otherworldly to me that i can't it's like my my biggest worry when i'm out on driving or scouting is that i'm gonna run out of gas 
that's that's my biggest worry like i you know and i it's 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 weird man it's hard for me to understand and yes i can understand i can understand that's uh I don't even actually know what your demographic, your ethnic demographic is, but like, I would say that like, that's the part of, um, you know, the privilege, you know, that, that, that black people start to talk about when they say like white privilege and, and things of that nature. Not to say that we don't have our own black, you know, black privilege or, or privilege and not to say that I'm not privileged in any way myself, but, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It, it's tough until you put, until you have that black skin. It's, Dude, it's hard I, to I maneuver. Am, I am, I grew up in Wisconsin in a small town and there were zero black people in my high school. We'll just, just, wow. just say that. I just say that. Was very, there's very, very lack of diversity, man. There's none. none. <laughs> well, that's why people like you, you need black friends to help create that awareness, <laughs> you know, not to say that you don't have any black friends, but just like, you know, uh, I saw something the other day and uh, it was very, I, I can't even remember what it was, but I was like, I had sent it to my, uh, my group chat of like motoring club friends and, and, uh, and something was off color, like, you know, just, just off. And I was like, this is why you need a black person in your circle. <laughs> Cause people will say new stuff they put out there. And they're like, wow. Yeah, otherwise it's like, the, they're making color TV jokes all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to like step away from car culture for a second and just get your thoughts. And I, and this is more just like a conversation. I don't think, Mel, maybe you are an expert on it. I'm not. It's just kind of just, just talking is one of the things that I saw and I watched this video of yours and um, I may play it as like an intro to the beginning of the episode, but it really talks about um, the freedom that a car can give you. Uh, yeah. And it seemed like something that, you know, I, I preach on that a lot. I think the car is the biggest tool for personal autonomy that human beings have ever had. Being able to like walk out of your house, get in your car and go where you want to go. So like you got enough gas, go where you want to go is, is huge. And um, I've lived in some really poor neighborhoods. I know what a food desert is and I cannot, but I've always had a car, right? Um, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived in, in a pretty shitty neighborhood and uh, I couldn't really leave. I didn't have a car. I couldn't leave. I had to hop on the train. So I ended up just like going. I lived by the Cow Palace, actually, uh, in San Francisco. It was like bars on the windows type of stuff. And I remember my bike and all the wheels and shit stolen off of it. It was not a great neighborhood, but I couldn't leave it. It was really difficult to leave. But if I had a car, I could have left. I could have gone somewhere else. I could have shopped where I wanted to shop. I could have went to a good grocery store instead of the quickie mark down the street that had nothing but candy and fucking cans of mamwich. You know what I mean? So I see the car, especially if you have a family, as a way for you to have autonomy to look for a job that you want, not only jobs that are available. You can go and you can get food. You can help your kids with their education. You can take your family where you want to take them. You can visit family. You can get out. You can leave. And I think that's something that has been slowly shrinking as um, some places have really great public transportation. San Francisco is great. I, I don't know what L.A. is like. New York is great. Um, Chicago is pretty good. A lot of the places in, the, in this country don't have good public transportation. They're essentially uh, worthless, which is another conversation of how to improve that. But you have these people that are getting priced out as the cost average cost of a car is now like like forty four, forty five thousand dollars for a brand new car. Not that anybody in, in this in this group I'm talking about, which is like 
um, underprivileged, impoverished, lower middle class is going to be buying like some crazy nice car or anything like that. But that trickles down. And as these cars have gotten more complicated, the labor and the parts to keep them on the road has gotten way more expensive as well. So you have these people that are like slowly being priced out of personal autonomy. Um, and, and this obviously uh, impacts, you know, you know, black people uh, in, at a ratio that it affects others less. You know, so I want to just get your thoughts on, um, you know, personal autonomy and driving and why why cars matter. Yeah, you know, it's such a, a rich topic and it's a really good question. And and um, it it is kind of sad. I think of it. I think it is kind of sad that like, you know, people like I have a lot of younger kids. So like I'm very uh I wouldn't say tapped in, but just like conscious of like the younger generation. Like I have younger cousins and nieces and I don't have any kids myself, but I have, you know, concerned about the younger generation. Like I, I notice how much of a less of an emphasis they put on driving and, and how harder it is for them. Like where I came from, everybody got a car when they were 16, you know, um, yeah. it's like a birthright. You just had to yeah. A thousand percent. We moved away from that. And like, uh, I always like tell people when they ask me like, Hey, what are your like long-term objectives? And, and one of them for me is like, I want to st start a foundation in my mother's name uh, that's really focused on driver's education. And because like she was always really big on that, like when, it, when I turned 14, she's like, you got to go get your driver's permit. You got to learn how to drive. And like I seen her do that with like the younger generations in my family where she'll pay for driver instruction and, and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's tragic. And I'm like very aligned. Um, I, I think it's not tragic. It's probably a, a sh extreme uh, description, but um, I think there's a certain thing that's eroding before our very eyes, you know, in addition to many other things. But for me, mobility, um, and it's kind of like captured in that freedom of the road. Like for me, physical mobility is always equated to social mobility. Yeah. And so when I think about my own journey, and where I'm at today on that social economical ladder, like I have no clue how I would have done that without the physical means of a car to get me to that job at the retail store at Ace Hardware, right? Uh, or to get me to that job interview with Enterprise Rent a Car. Like I just don't, you know. And it's crazy, you know, like we're in a different, we're in a different time and space right now where so much of what we do is virtual. Yeah. And and so like you know, there's stuff, there's a ton of opportunities there to, to sort of still thrive without a car. But I do feel like there's also a push to kind of come back in person in a lot of scenarios too. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's scary to, to think about autonomy and mobility being limited, especially in places like a Los Angeles or like the rural town that I grew up in, in Georgia where the mass transportation situation is, is very poor and in some parts very dangerous as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even, of course, I didn't even think about that. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's getting stuck on a light rail and going back and forth. I mean, there's, I know here in Minneapolis, there's a lot of crime on the light rail on the train. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of crime yeah. that happens. A lot of people get mugged, beat up, you know, assaulted. And if you're in a car, you don't have to deal with any of that. And um, I think that a lot of this this autonomy and mobility discussion gets lost in 
the utopian thoughts of reurbanization of like society and urban places and which is like it's really wonderful to think that we could all live in societies where you could just walk everywhere to get what you need but it just is not that way it is just yeah. isn't it might be if you live in some like ultra elite like new neighborhood in norway or like some like brand new bougie you know urban district and whatever but it isn't like that for most people it isn't like that. So when you go through and you pass all these laws that make it expensive to park places, you make it and, and all these regulations make cars expensive. It only hurts the lower class. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. And, I, and it's it's definitely tough. And we need to do. Yeah, the rising the I mean, the, the situation with the rising cost and the inflation, like that's a whole situation where I'm like, yeah. it's so hard to even wrap my head around and, and, and fathom how that is is going. And and like there's a part of me that like knee jerk reaction is like, well, you can always buy an older car. But then like, you, you know, there is forever. the cost around, yeah. you know, there is the cost around maintenance and 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 repair and upkeep and like i think about my own purchase of the of the 911 like it's just crazy and not to and this is that 911 is a far cry from what we're talking about what we're talking about is it's sort of basic mobility you know but like even like a honda corolla like I, I don't even know the price point of a honda corolla or toyota corolla right now but um you know it, things are it's, it's yeah things are not as accessible as, as they were as they once were and and uh the complication you know, of everything is going crazy too. I mean, they're so complicated. Like yeah. you can't even be a yeah. guy that's going to save money by working on your own shit because it's, yeah, you, you need a new box, bumper yeah. on your new car. It's got LIDAR in it. Like how is a dude going to recalibrate his LIDAR on his new, even a new Corolla for that example? It's a bummer, man. It's, yeah. I don't know where, I don't know where it all goes. And I haven't gotten too involved uh, in like, the part of SEMA that is working on the legislation and all of that. But, you know, my ears really perk up when I hear that because we do need to preserve that, that right to repair. And, uh, uh, you yeah. know, I don't really, I'm not really too political, um, you know, but sometimes, uh, you know, like when I hear some of the, the liberal perspectives on, on, on things like that it's kind of scary it almost seems like people just don't want us to drive anymore period uh yeah which is which is crazy just because of the way of our the way our cities are sort of laid out and, and the way that the urban planning has has occurred and so i just don't understand how that would work out um i think or, it just comes down to like they have i don't think they're being malevolent about it you know they don't want they don't want you to not drive i don't think it's what it is i think they want you to exist in the system and and this goes for both sides both sides want you to live in the system that is their ideal system right they think that their idea is this idea and they want you to live within that box and in this case the system is like public transportation if you need help if you need help we will help you we'll get you sorted out you know we'll, we'll create yeah. a safety net for you rather than the the autonomy part of it they're like you don't need autonomy we got you when in reality, it's like the best thing you can have, I think. And I'm I'm in it. This is my my biggest political issue is making sure that people can can drive and uh, and and take care of themselves. Nobody knows better yeah. what's better for you than you.
CSF Cooling has always been at the forefront of quality products for a fair price. With a rich history stretching over seven decades, they provide the best high-performance and OEM Plus cooling systems on the market today. CSF offers over 3,000 different cooling applications for the most popular makes and models on the road today. From classic copper brass radiators for Land Cruisers, Jeeps, and Datsuns, to vintage 80s Mercedes, BMW, and Audi and Porsche platforms, all the way up to new vehicles. Check out their expanding classic series lineup, and be sure to check them out at csfrace.com or on social media. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there, there's a popular pundit uh, or, or sort of talking head in our space that says that, um, you know, like, if America won't take away guns, like, they won't take away our cars. They're like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, there's, there's I, I saw that that there's an initiative on the ballot or something in California to sort of, like, limit the the speed limit of cars or something like that, yeah. like from the factor yep. from the factory, um, you know, which is which old is cars when you start worth like tons of money, man. Like you're like a 1996 Camry is going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and and talking through some of this stuff with me. Um, I feel like I learned yeah, a lot. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we should talk about getting you some out on some events. I'd love to have you. I'd love to hear more of your stories and, uh, have you out on the rally sometime. You're there's an open invite for you anytime. I uh, appreciate that. And, and like for those that may be, that may be chiming in, uh, you know, because they see that I'm on the podcast or whatnot. So the, the section of my audience that, that doesn't have a clue about, what a Robbins rally is or an overcrest, like while I have your attention, like I'm just curious, like tell me the Genesis and like, like in oh, your Jesus. own words, kind of like what is overcrest, you know, what does it mean for you? And, and kind of like, how has it evolved? If, if you have the time to answer that question. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I mean, overcrest kind of started out when I was, when I was, <laughs> man, how much time do you have? Um, overcrest started for me <laughs> when I realized almost in the same way that you did that driving can be, it can be an escape. It is, it is a place where for me, I left hurtful places and, uh, and got in my car and was able to leave them behind. And that's kind of where really? like, if I had to boil it down to one thing, it would be that um, it's kind of evolved since there. I mean, I think, I think exploration is really, really important. Um, I yeah, think it's important to expose yourself to, to new things. Um, maybe uncomfortable things. I think if you can, mm-hmm. uh, I think if you go through your day to day, like you can't, you can't wish away the minutia of life, which is like the, mm-hmm. the, just the every day, the stuff like, I mean, this might be a memorable day cause we got to talk and meet each other for the first time, but like yeah. yesterday, maybe in three months will be completely forgotten. And that's the way that most yeah. of our life is. And you can't yeah. not, you can't say those days aren't important because they are, but you really have to make sure that you're able to somehow break from that mold. Um, it's kind of crass and I don't say it as much as I used to anymore, but I used to say, if you're not exploring, you might as well be dead. And whether it's cars or not cars, I feel like it can be food, music, art. I don't care what it is. You need to be out there exploring and exposing your mind to new things, new cultures. And, uh, and, letting your brain slow down 
Because when you're going through your day-to-day life, you're opening up the file cabinet and you're just pulling out like the same file that's in your mind of that you, when you wake up in the morning and you, and you're in your bedroom and you walk around your bedroom and you leave, you don't, you didn't look at anything. Your brain, it knows what's there. It's already experienced all of it. It doesn't need to analyze anything. That moment in time is like deleted. It's like it never even happened. But when you go and you experience something new, your brain Mm -hmm. has to stop and go, what the fuck is this? What is that? It has to like, it has to like slow down. There's nothing in the file cabinet for what you're experiencing at that, at that given time. And that's experience with experiences with friends. That's experiences with places that you're going to do or see and experience, whether it's a shop or like a, a restaurant or the food or a new road or a new place. And I truly believe that the, the car is the best way to see and experience new things in that way for me. Um, lots of other people do yeah, it in different ways, mountain climbing, mountain biking, whatever it is. But for me, I think the the car is an insane tool, uh, to express, uh, personal liberty and, and, and learning and experiencing new things. So the rally kind of started with like, I did this film with my buddy, Alex called Dazil. It's on YouTube. It's on the Stanceworks YouTube channel. And it was just like us fucking around making this film about driving my nine 11 across the country, which to me was like, okay, just just drive, drive it, like get in the car, start the car and then drive it to another place. And for some reason, and the film really resonated with people and they're like, Hey man, that was really cool. You've really inspired me to go drive, drive my car and, and, uh, and take the car, which is kind of like our hashtag that we ended up with was take the car. And then I did this article for, um, triple zero magazine about driving out to Rensport. And people saw that and they were like, oh, my God, this would be great. Can, and and I'd always planned automotive events like I've done rallies and, and car shows here in Minnesota. And me and Jeff and Jake got together. And we said, let's let's see what we can do to try and get out there and explore with people. What can we do? How can we make this happen? How can we inspire people to get out there and experience these new things and and just just be somewhere they're not take a risk, right? Like the places we go, there isn't many people there. It's a risk. It's a risk of you're going to leave work. You're going to, you're going to spend your own personal capital and your own personal finances to get there. You're going to take the risk that your car might break down or whatever the case may be. It's a risky endeavor. I mean, not that risky. Like we're not in fucking Bolivia or something. Right. But in terms of like Western civilization, what people do with their little like with their lives where they don't really get out of their life. It's a risky maneuver, especially for a lot of people that haven't done anything like that before. I've heard people be like, dude, I'm scared. I'm scared to come on this rally. Like, what if I get lost? Like, you don't give us a GPS. You give us a route book. What? uh, And they don't know what to. But like, it's good for them. It's good. And And it and it's really inspiring to like try and bring more and more people into the fold like we have uh our utah is our rallies in utah in a few months and we're having as many new people come as we can it's not a good old boys club right we're trying to make sure that we can have as many new people come to experience this and hopefully we can uh hopefully we can infect them and send them back to wherever they live and they can infect all their friends and and you know with with the drive to explore that's that's kind of what it's all about that's really cool that's really cool and uh, I haven't been on a ton of rallies yet, but um, the one that I went on that really stood out, like 
it all it sort of really came home for me after like thrashing my after being like sort of side eye and like wondering like why am I here to uh breaking my Porsche and seeing so many people like rally around me to try to like uh, no pun intended uh but like sort of rally around me to to try to make the Porsche okay to the point where I just like had to accept that the car was down I limped it home and then like about halfway home, I was like looking at people's locations on, on our route and on the, on the app and things of that nature. And I was like, you know what? I could probably get another car and rejoin the rally for like the last leg of it. Yeah. And I, I got the car home, went and found another car, ended up rejoining the rally. Uh, you know, so it was like one of those like full circle transformative yeah. moments where it was like, so meaningful and so special and and and, uh how long did it take you to unplug your your mind like for me when i get in a car and i'm going on a road trip it takes me about like three hours and then it's like i've just like disconnected from where i was and now i'm at the at this place it's like the entire road trip almost is a place that you're visiting yeah i would say for me it probably kicked in like right around day two yeah. So yeah, not the first three hours. Um, but like right around day two, when I started to get into a part of California that I had never seen before and never explored. Uh, so maybe about, maybe about halfway through day one, I remember like separating from the group and just pulling over into this like little Vista viewpoint type thing and just like really soaking it all in, you know, like taking it, taking it all in and, and just this moment in time and, not really caring about other people or any routes or anything like that, but just like pausing to suck it in. So like, and I think that happened on day one. So maybe it happened quicker. Maybe it, the awareness of when I like mentally unplugged is, is not super crystal clear to me, but yeah, if anybody's listening, I would suggest doing a rally. I, I, I bought a whole car now. I don't know if you, you've been, you've mentioned it a couple of times. I bought the O2 just to do rallies. <laughs> I lost you, you there for that? a second. I lost you there for a second. Is that were you about to say uh, that's why I bought the two thousand two? Uh, yeah, to do rallies. It's my rally car now. <laughs> yeah, man, that thing is dope. Yeah, I, could, I could, I just, I knew where you were going. I knew where you were going with it. Well, I'd love to see that thing out there, man. I, I'm glad you caught it, caught the bug. And uh, the problem is, it only gets worse. You know, you explore California a little bit and then you're like, oh, I wonder what it's like over in Colorado or I wonder what it's like over here. And then pretty soon you're just you want that um, that sense of discovery. And there's some places that are so remote that when you get out of the car and you're alone and you look around and you realize that you are the only person experiencing that the only one. There's no one else that is seeing and experiencing what you're experiencing at that at that given time for that beautiful thing or that beautiful place. And you, you literally own it. It's like yours. It's like you've rented it from the earth for the time that you're mm-hmm. there and then you leave and then someone else will come and experience it later. But for that moment, it's, it's a hundred percent yours. And that is like, a, it sounds like you've had that feeling and it is, it is awesome. And it's hard to duplicate. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. Thank you so much for the time. And congratulations on all your success. Really appreciate the invitation to, to join the rally and to uh, just have a conversation about real stuff. Yeah, man, it's it's it was good. I you know, when I first started sitting down, like planning out how I was going to do this, I had all these questions written out and I realized that I was. I was making it all about myself and I had I just like I just deleted everything and just decided to just come in and have a conversation about stuff. 
Um, cause honestly, yeah. I, you know, as like, I'm, I'm sensitive. So I was nervous. Like I didn't really know how to approach it. So I appreciate you being so kind with me and, and spending the time with me too. I, I really do appreciate it. It's very generous of you. Yeah, no doubt. Black wax. All right, man. You take care of yourself. All right. You too now. All right. <laughs>